Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. I'm really excited for today's conversation with another accomplished Georgia teacher. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take a moment to leave a review, I would really appreciate it. Today, I am joined by Kelly Bryant. Hello, Kelly. Hi, baby. And thank you so much for having me today. Oh, I am excited to talk to you. Let's get started with a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Great. Well, I am a professional flutist here in Atlanta. I moved to the Atlanta area in 1993 after completing my bachelor's and my master's at the University of South Carolina. And my husband now at the time was my boyfriend and is a high school band director or actually just retired from 32 years of high school band directing. So we met during our master's degree and we moved to Atlanta. I started a small private studio. Actually, it started small, ended up much bigger. While I was taking professional auditions and freelancing, obviously I moved from Columbia, South Carolina, so I was already playing in several regional level orchestras at the time. Uh, where I am today is um, artist in residence at Kennesaw State University, where I'm one of a few flute faculty there. And I've been there since, now, let's see, 2017. Yeah, so I'm, I'm the newest member of flute faculty there. And I've been on the faculty at Reinhardt as an artist affiliate in flute since 2008. And then 1998, I won a position with the Atlanta Opera Orchestra playing second flute and piccolo. And I'm still in that orchestra. So I play with that group regularly and I substitute with the Atlanta Ballet and the Atlanta Symphony frequently and do a lot of freelance work in the Atlanta area as well. Can we back up to the very beginning of your story? How did you get into music? Did you start on flute? Actually, no. I started as a singer, a bad singer, but I had had a really fantastic ear and I loved to sing mostly country music. I shouldn't admit that publicly, but my family grew, we grew up in in rural Virginia. So bluegrass was a big part of my musical background, country music, listening to harmonies. My dad was a jazz clarinetist, um, not professional, but he played a lot of jazz clarinet. So we listened to so many different genres of music and my mother sang and played piano and played guitar. So we were always extremely active as a family, singing together, listening to a lot of music together. So that's how it started. And then I picked up piano just by ear. I think my parents at that point realized that I had close to perfect pitch. I think it was closer to perfect pitch when I was much younger. And uh, I would hear like the Moonlight Sonata and I was figuring out the notes on the piano with the worst possible fingerings imaginable. Or I would hear my mom play something and I would sit down at the piano and play the exact same thing that she would play. So how old, how old were you at this point? 
Uh, I was probably, well, I've been singing since I was probably five or six years old. And then piano, we always had a piano in the house, but I actually sat down and started playing it probably when I was seven or eight. And then we moved. We At that point, we lived in Miami, Florida. So at that point, we moved to Virginia. And I decided at that point that I didn't want to sing anymore because I was really self-conscious about my voice. I didn't have a great voice, but I could sing in tune. But to me, I, I started becoming really hyper aware of how I didn't sound great, even though I could sing in tune. So I decided to play the flute because it was shiny and pretty and small and it seemed practical and compact. So I, I joined the band. Well, the first day I went to band, I told my director, I, you know, I was new in town. I had just moved from, from Florida to Virginia. I said, well, I'd like to play in the band, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to play the flute. And he immediately, and this was like halfway through the school year, I think I was 11 or 12. And he said, no, I have too many flutes. You have to play clarinet. And I thought, oh God, there's no way I'm playing clarinet. And I said, okay. So I, I went home that day and I told my parents, I have to have a flute today. We have to go get a flute so that I can play flute and band tomorrow. And so right away, my parents were like, okay, we'll go rent a flute from the local music store. So while they went and picked one up, I was at home, you know, figuring out, you know, what, what how am I going to learn? They gave, he gave me, you know, like a, just a general band book. My mom, I told my mom what book to get, bring the flute version back. So she brought that back and I immediately started looking up fingerings and trying to figure out, I put the flute on my face and I could just immediately make a, a beautiful characteristic sound. Well, at least I thought it was beautiful at the time. Maybe looking back, it might not have been so great, but it was easy for me to get a, a good sound. And so at that time in general life, I think Marshall Tucker Band, which is a, just a pop band, had a song on the radio called Heard It in a Love Song. It's like this country song that has this huge flute solo in it. And I thought, well, I'm going to learn that and I'm going to take it to school the next day and play it for my band director. So he won't be sorry he that I pretty much disobeyed his orders to play the clarinet. I'm going to show him that I can actually play the flute. I stayed up all night, hit hit on the cassette recorder, play, rewind, play, rewind, you know, figure out the fingerings. And I marched into school the next day with my cassette player and I sat it down on the table and I said, well, I'm going to play the, they didn't have any clarinets, so I'm going to play the flute and listen to what I can do. And I hit play and played the little flute solo in that. And he's like, okay, all right, well, I guess you're going to play the flute then. And then, and then the rest is, history until they tried to get me to switch to oboe, which I did for about two days. And then I went straight back to flute. You were meant to be with the flute. I was meant to be with the flute. It was love at first sight. I mean, it just seemed to be such a natural fit for me. One of the hardest things about playing the flute is getting a sound out. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird because you don't just blow into something, you blow across something. So there's no resistance. A lot of people, uh, a lot of students have trouble creating that resistance, um, but 
some people just put the flute to their face and they can get a great sound. And if that's the case, I pretty much always encourage the student to stick with it. At what point did you decide that you wanted to become a musician or did you know that quite young? I think I knew it quite young. Um, I, like I said, I was always with the singing until I became way too self-conscious. I would, we had a grade sing every year. I mean, every week we would go all go to the cafeteria and we would sing into the microphone and our music teacher would play the guitar and the whole grade would be there. And every Friday without fail, I was there singing John Denver songs, you know, at the top of my lungs in the microphone, the same song every Friday. I was in a lot of musicals and my listening started evolving in a way that I, that I started understanding the music a little bit more. I started to analyze in my head sort of what I was listening to, not from a theoretical standpoint, but really listening more intently and with purpose. And I'm the kind of person who likes to figure things out. Like if my lawnmower's broken, I might take it apart and put it back together and try to make it work the dishwasher stuff, weird stuff like that. And the flute was kind of that process for me. So whereas nothing else in my life was in terms of academics, just didn't, I mean, I was a good student, but I didn't really have a passion for it. And it didn't challenge me in a way that figuring out music and understanding it and, and having a collective group to play in and, and the way it made me feel emotionally and, you know, intellectually was, was very appealing at a a super young age. So I think I knew pretty early on, I never once thought I was going to do anything else until, you know, maybe much later. And every now and then we all have those thoughts like, Oh, what if I had done X, Y, or Z, you know, Um, I think those happen more as we get older, once we've been through a certain point in our career, but as a young person, there was no doubt. I was always the, the band nerd, <laughs> the, the musician at the school, you know, so. Yeah, I think perhaps one of the most astonishing part about your story of learning the flute was just that kind of grit and determination that came with it. Did that sustain you through all of your childhood in terms of your approach towards practicing? So in other words, what was practicing like for you as a child? For sure. Uh, you know, the more I did it and the more I, I realized that there was so much more to learn. Like when I, when I was learning to do articulation, um, I, I did it all incorrectly. And when I figured out that I wasn't doing it correctly, because three years down the road after doing it incorrectly, one of my band directors just said, you know, you're, you're articulating with your throat. You're, you need to use your tongue. And I was like, oh, really? You know, at that point, I had never had private lessons. I was pretty much self-taught. And in band, band directors are so busy, you know, teaching every instrument simultaneously. So because I was producing a beautiful sound, they didn't pay much attention to me. I was already reading notation really well and way ahead of students in my class. So I started to realize when I, I would go play for my band director and, and he'd say, yeah, this is, no, no, you have to tongue this way. 
And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to work on that. And then he, and then he would say, and you know, your hand position is, is not working well for you. You need to extend your right hand. I go home and I would just relentlessly try to change all those habits and figure out what, what I was doing that I shouldn't be doing. I bought books. I read tons of books. So just, just pedagogy, just even at a young age so that I could teach myself. So I was always in the workshop, so to speak, (laughs) you know, it's like hay in a barn that needs to age. And that was me. I practiced religiously. It was, it was a passion for me. I wanted to learn my scales right away. I wanted to learn the full range fingerings right away. That was done in, in weeks because I wanted to have the tools that I needed so that I could play. I had recordings that my dad, like I was saying, my dad played the clarinet and we had Galway recordings. We used to listen to James Galway on the Tonight Show. So I had Galway recordings. I had Ron Paul recordings of the Mozart concertos. Didn't have any of the music. And of course we didn't have IMSLP back then. So I wanted to learn those notes so that I could pretty much play those concertos by ear or play whatever James Galway was playing. I was determined to figure it out. And then uh, right around junior high, I think, junior high, I started uh, with my first teacher, not on a very regular basis because she was quite far away, but I started with a, a teacher near my hometown who really just basically played duets with me. I started working on some some flute literature. And that's the first time that I actually saw flute literature, like Handel Sonata on paper. Mm. I heard them and I could kind of play them, but I actually saw the notation. And then from there on, it just, it just went very quickly. And I was obsessed, you know, like more, more, I need to do more. So practice, my parents usually had to tell me to stop. I used to lock myself in the bathroom I don't, I guess because the acoustics were really good in there and, and stay for hours and hours and listen to recordings and take the needle back and try to figure out how to play whatever I was listening to. So never did they have to encourage me to practice. Mostly it was telling me to stop. (laughs) Yeah. I think we've already started touching on this, but I'll ask it anyways. Why are you a musician and teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path? Well, I think I wouldn't say that there's anyone in particular that guided me to be a teacher, but I think without they're knowing that my parents really helped me to develop my ear at such a young age by listening to music and to be open to all kinds of music instead of being, you know, like, oh, I won't listen to that. I could see value in learning harmony by listening to the Oak Ridge Boys. I mean, have you ever even heard of who the, yeah, right. So bluegrass is very virtuosic playing on banjo and guitar and mandolin. And now like we recognize those instruments as legitimate instruments. I mean, Bella Fleck is like one of the most amazing banjo players on the planet and can play a Bach partita like nobody's ever heard. Chris Thiele on mandolin, same thing, you know, and we're finding that those folk instruments are collaborating so much more with mainstream classical musicians 
um, that there's a real niche for it. And so I grew up listening to that my whole life. And I wanted to, I taught myself a lot. And I think that, that I was kind of born into teaching just out of necessity. It came by it very honestly and out of necessity. Uh, by the time I was in high school, I had a I had a private studio. I was teaching middle schoolers how to play the flute. And by that time, I'd sort of figured out what I was doing incorrectly and could kind of use some of my knowledge to, to start some beginners so that they wouldn't have the same bad habits that I started with. And then all through college, um, I taught in the community school and then as the graduate teaching assistant. And then my path, you know, really started to develop as a, as a teacher. I, I don't know, I guess it's just right there in my soul and my heart and how I just grew up. And it's been a huge part of my career, probably the biggest part. Hmm. Describe your journey as a teacher. How have you changed? Who or what have been your key influences? As a teacher, like I said, I started teaching um, middle schoolers and some high schoolers when I was in high school. And that progressed into uh, teaching in college and the graduate assistantship. Then with the, with the graduate assistantship, I started teaching more pedagogy because I was training future high school band directors. I was teaching the flute methods class. So I had to teach you know, a bunch of people who really didn't want to play the flute, but they needed to learn how to play the flute. And that was a completely different approach that forced me to really simplify my practice and know the pedagogy inside and out so that I could explain to them how to teach it to their future students. Some of the students in that class and, and moving forward in my life have really struggled trying to teach the flute. It's a very hard instrument to teach, probably the hardest one for the reasons I mentioned before. It's just hard to get a sound and it's, it's very awkward to hold the flute for most people. It's not a symmetrical, balanced comfortable instrument to play at first feels extremely awkward so I taught all through college and then when I moved to Atlanta and I needed to establish work in addition to my playing I mean I immediately went out and started hustling at at local high schools and like I said my husband was a high school band director so I immediately built up studios and at all the high schools in the area and then that evolved into my first college teaching position was at Clayton College and State University, which is in Morrow, home of Spivey Hall. So that was my first college teaching position. And I, I was there for a number of years. And then I did a one-year position, uh, or like I think it ended up being a two-year interim position at the University of Georgia, not long after I finished my master's. And then now I'm at uh, Reinhardt University and also at KSU. And then I have a small private studio, but right now my focus is more on my college age students. I, I do love to teach younger students. They're so impressionable. They'll do anything you tell them, which is just the best thing ever. So I love getting younger students, definitely open to building that up again when I have time. But yeah, it's it's kind of evolved into close to full-time career teaching-wise. Yeah, so let's sit on this topic of teaching a little longer. How do you approach teaching and what is your teaching philosophy? 
I feel like I have a very open approach to teaching. I think the expectations for students nowadays are so much greater than they were when I was in school. When I was in school, AP stuff just really wasn't a thing. There wasn't so much pressure to get in college. I mean, people did go to college, but you didn't have to have, you know, 20 APs on your transcript to get into some of the best schools. I feel like it's important as a teacher to be able to recognize trends and how how life has evolved. Uh, Even when I started teaching almost 30 years ago, uh, life was different then. You know, there were APs and stuff, but but kids didn't want to do band and baseball and all these things. You know, now now kids want to do do all of those extracurriculars. Plus, they have an extremely heavy academic load. So I want the students to come to me and meet me where they are. And I build from there. Some come with a lot of skills. Uh, some come with, with real natural technical ability, but don't have a very characteristic sound. And then some come with the opposite problem. They, they have a beautiful sound and not a lot of great technique. They're doing wrong fingerings. They, they have, you know, all kinds of issues. So I think it's important to recognize where the student is and how you can build them from there, from the foundation up. I think it's important to recognize how students learn and how to treat them as an individual. My my syllabus for both universities is a very broad syllabus because I don't believe in a one-size-fits-all mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> I think one size fits all is, is the death of all of us. So I'm constantly listening. I'm evaluating. I'm prescribing much like a doctor. Oh, today we need to address this infection you have, you know, and uh, we need to make sure that this week we are focusing on X, Y, and Z. I think it's important to be open and recognize where that student is at the time. Uh, Of course, I have a curriculum. I have, I have expectations, you know, we do, we do exercises, we do finger exercises, we do tone exercises, technical studies, repertoire, but I think it's really important to know when to lay off a particular aspect of a lesson, because a student might not be in the right headspace for it at that moment. As teachers, we need to recognize where these students are, both mentally and physically, and what's going on in their life and make a quick judgment as to how we're going to approach that lesson that day. So a uh, lot of good people skills, a lot of reading skills, and then we go from there. Uh, Earlier you mentioned the phrase characteristic sound um, in, in the context of someone might come in with great technique, but might not have a characteristic sound. How do you approach that? How do you teach someone to find their characteristic sound? Because I think sometimes we can use phrases like that and it can seem so mysterious. It is mysterious and it's super hard to teach that because a lot of times if the student doesn't recognize that that's not the sound that they should be going for, then it's hard for them to really make a change. So 
I would say a characteristic sound needs to be free of interference. It needs to be full and beautiful, much like when you're trying to pull a sound out of a piano for a particular, let's say a WC, you know, it's, you're going to play WC differently than you play Schumann, mm-hmm. right? It's a different sound, but the, the basis of the sound we want it to be whole. We want it to be pure. And the sound has to be that way from the beginning to the end. So the articulation, how we start the sound and how we end the sound is really, is really important. So it's teaching the student what that is. What, what does that sound like? And at this point in, in our lives, we have access to so many amazing recordings online, YouTube. And so I can either, of course, I demonstrate for them, but I also refer them to recordings that I know are good, reliable recordings. And then we, so they have that sound in their ear. And then as the teacher, you have to identify why are they not getting that sound? You know, it could be something very physical, like Maybe they have braces. Maybe their anatomy is not conducive to producing that sound. We have to look like with x-ray vision on the inside, the pharyngeal situation here. Is there is everything too high? Are they too tight in the throat? Is the tongue down and flat or is it up high? Uh, is it obstructing the air? Is the embouchure, which is the lips, uh, are they, you know, are stuck in the wrong place? Are they using too much pressure here on the chin? Is the aperture too small, too large? There are so many physical things, and this is why you have to have so many tricks in your tool bag so that you can can really try. And sometimes it's extremely physical where I'm in their face and I'm moving the head joint in and out this way, that way, you know, and we're working on exercises that strengthen some of the muscles, the fine muscles here in the face. And so it's, it's a, it's a very complicated uh, subject (laughs) to, to address, but the first thing is they got to know what that sounds like so that they can make that. So they know what they're striving for. And then, then, then you get the, the zoom lens in and you start zooming in and so it might start out a little bit rough where, oh, I hear there's the core, there's a core there. At least there's a core. It's a little jagged on the edges, but I do hear a center. And then we start zooming in the lens and making it a little bit more compact and resonant Mm -hmm. in a way. Um, And sometimes that's a physical change. Sometimes it has to do with airspeed. Some, you know, so it just depends on the student. Sometimes that has to do with hand position, believe it or not, because of their their hand position is rolling them in, they're not going to get their air going in the right direction to really send the air down the tube of the flute. So so there's a lot of components and it takes a lot of analyzing to make that work. So that is much harder to teach than just fingerings and technique. That's easy. Yeah, that was like an insider's tour into uh, flute technique for a non-flutist. Exactly. I had not realized that there are so many moving parts and variables that goes into determining tone. I mean, I could have imagined that, but to hear you articulate that, that was really wonderful. So thank you for sharing that. On to our next question. What advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? 
How can they encourage and help them to succeed? What role do parents play in a child's musical development? Wow, I feel like I can come to this question uh, both as a teacher and as a parent of two kids uh, who are both pursuing careers in music. Just to give you a little background, my, my son completed a bachelor's in horn performance from Northwestern, and he is currently a student at Curtis mm-hmm. um, doing an artist diploma in horn. And my daughter is a junior piano music major um, at the University of Michigan, where she's also getting a degree in musicology. So I've been down that parent path. And sometimes when you're a professional musician and you're going down that path, it can be quite challenging because we already, both my husband and I already have opinions about how our kids should be practicing and what they should be doing when they're practicing and how to practice efficiently and effectively, which is the very biggest concept that I teach with my private studio, uh, both college, any level, how to practice efficiently and effectively. You know, you think about not every parent is in that, in that situation. So whether your kids are in private lessons or not, I would say in the beginning, if you notice that they have some aptitude for, for music, to fertilize it, play music for them. It could be, you know, turn on, turn on, if you have XM, you know, some classical music, turn on bluegrass music, turn on whatever, you know, opera, the Met channel, you know, so they get exposed to all of those things. They get an idea so they don't get stuck in one, you know, because something might, might trigger them Mm -hmm. to become even more interested. Like I say, I'm convinced that my parents really helped develop my ear without meaning to, but always, we always have music in the house. So I think that that is really important to do. And then get them out to concerts. There's so many free concerts now, and especially now that COVID is getting a little bit better, there's opportunities for you to get those kids out and have them experience live music, which is so crucial right now in keeping professional musicians working and perpetuating this career that that we want to continue. You know, with my kids in particular, uh, my son, he used to go with me to orchestra rehearsals and concerts, and I would have the score for him. I would have the horn part for him to follow along. He would do a little bit of study in advance. He knew what he was listening to. You know, if we were doing Mahler, he, he would one time listen and follow this horn part and one time listen and follow another horn part or follow the whole score. So he knew, had a really good picture of what was going on. And with the resources that we have now online uh, with IMSLP, you can, you can listen and follow the scores so easily. I think students should take an, you know, and parents should help students take an active role in listening to music, whether it's live or recorded. But there's something different about attending a live performance that really helps to hook the student. How old was your son when he started sitting in on those rehearsals? Oh, he was super young. He actually, he's accelerated two grades. So he went to college at 16. So this, he was probably seven or eight 
you know, actually, I mean, he's been going to concerts with me since day one. Yeah, he's seen the back, the inner workings of Nutcrackers and operas and symphonic work. So he was always there at a super young age. But I didn't really, it wasn't until he started really showing interest and started playing horn that I was like, well, let's, let me just show you what the horn can do. Any parent could do this. You don't have to be a professional musician. Look at the repertoire. See what, what, what is this orchestra playing? You know, what is the Atlanta symphony playing this weekend? Oh, let me, let me just look up a score and have, you know, if my kid's really interested in music, have them listen to this and, Hey, do you want to go see the symphony? A lot of times there's student tickets that aren't expensive, you know, go hear the youth orchestra. So they get to hear young people playing live music, which is even more inspiring. I mean, my daughter was very inspired by some super young pianists. She started at eight, so, which is late for a pianist. I think taking an active role and helping, you know, that's what I mean by fertilizing, helping them to grow as, as a budding musician. And then when they, when they want to really experiment with different instruments. Like for me, I knew I was going to play the flute, but some, they might want to experiment. I tried to get my son in piano early on and he, he did that for about six months and I made him, you know, he, he really wanted to do it at first. So I made him make a six month commitment. And after that six months, he was done and wanted to play something else. So when we went to Horn, I forced him to make a much longer commitment because I am a firm believer in don't let your kid just quit so easily. I see it all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. something gets hard and that's it. They're done. You know, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it, right? That brings up an interesting question um, for me, you know, as a pianist, I get a lot of parents asking, you know, my kid wants to uh, learn the piano, but I don't want to spend the money in buying the piano until I know that he or she is going to stick with it. And so what is your advice as a parent that has gone through that, had a kid start in it and then switch to a different instrument? What would you tell someone who is finding themselves in a similar situation now? Right. So with regards to piano, because that's a big instrument and it's not as simple as like, oh, if I don't like the flute, I can rent it for six months and then switch to something else. But we were lucky. We always had a piano in our house. Um, Like I said, just the one that was in my house when I grew up, I brought with me. So my kids were always kind of banging on it. But um, I like to tell parents that you know, this will require a minimum commitment of one year. I mean, I feel like they really need to give it a year. And especially if they're with a really good teacher who has great knowledge of pedagogy. And I I think it's important that the parents don't allow them to quit so easily because I, I have found this to be the case. A lot of students these days don't quite have the attention span to do just one thing for so long. You know, they get impatient and they, so I feel like if they kind of are on that track that they might stay on that track, mm-hmm. you know, they, they like to change, change a lot. So I, I would suggest a one-year commitment. And even if 
they're playing a really good high quality keyboard or if they can, you know, reserve practice space at a local music store or that sort of thing or practice on the school piano at their school and Mm -hmm. maybe have a, you know, a decent keyboard at home so that they're at least getting those keyboard skills and the theory skills that they need, you know, to kind of establish that foundation. I mean, there's so many ways we can be creative so that students can make an informed decision once they get to a certain point. But I have found so often that sometimes we give up too quickly. Like, you know, we, we, we get impatient. We're so used to quick and instant results. And, you know, when something takes uh, 50 repetitions to get it right, I try to discourage that because I think if it takes 50 repetitions, you're not practicing effectively uh, and efficiently. And so I, I, kids get impatient with that. So I think it's important for the parents to recognize when, when their kids are kind of wasting their time while they're practicing, if they're not playing correctly at the very beginning, Mm -hmm. then that's going to lead to frustration. That's going to increase their chances of not wanting to stick with it, just kind of going in another area. But I, I like to encourage my students to only play successfully I I don't want incorrect. So even if this tempo is super slow, play at a tempo that you know you're going to be 100% correct, no matter what, and then we build from there. And that way they're less frustrated and less likely to quit. (laughs) So Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about some of the biggest teaching challenges you have faced and how you overcame them. Well, the biggest challenge has been having to do everything virtually for almost two years because of COVID. It's been an enormous challenge. Kids, you know, were doing screen for school and then screen for lessons and lacking those, the interaction. They're not able to play in their ensembles at school. And it's just been, you know, really, really challenging for students to power through that. I know band programs and orchestra programs all over the place that lost a lot of students during the pandemic because they just couldn't couldn't handle it. So trying to keep students challenged in a unique way. And I have found like I encouraged a lot of my students to do a lot of recording and self-reflecting and go back and listen and self-evaluation of how Um, their particular assignments have been. And that is now a process that I use in regular lessons that are face-to-face again. I actually really encourage them to record their lessons, keep a journal, you know, and do some of the same practices that I kind of invented out of necessity during COVID. And it has been, it's been fantastic. It's produced fantastic results. Some students have handled the, the COVID thing better than others. Uh, I have one that went to virtual lessons and she's still doing virtual lessons and doing amazing. I mean, she's an all-state level flutist and has responded very well. I have some that are absolutely not agreeable to doing anything over Zoom. So, um, you know, we still have to be really flexible, but it has definitely caused me to be much more creative. And I can tell you both of my kids, you know, who wants to go to Curtis over Zoom? And nobody, (laughs) you know, if you're at Curtis, you want to be playing in the orchestra and performing. So that was quite a challenge for for my son and doing uh, summer music festivals over Zoom, too. 
it's just amazing what we've created out of necessity. So I think there is some good in that. Basically, I would say we we were forced to to think out of the box a little bit. We got a little bit comfortable doing our day-to-day in-person teaching. And now it's like, wow, we have to, we have to be really resourceful and creative so that these students continue to grow like they need and improve like they need to. Yeah. I'm curious, um, since you are in the band world with your husband being an educator and everything, do you get the sense that band has recovered and rebounded uh, from the COVID pandemic and students, have they come back? Have they rebuilt? It's rebuilding. You know, recruiting is still, I, I will speak, you know, for colleges, recruiting is still a little bit tricky because a lot of us are very, um, very hesitant to still go into public schools. There, like I said, some school, some kids are just done with the whole thing. But I would say in Georgia, generally speaking, once we got through the big hump of the pandemic, um, they started doing face-to-face and there are some um, uh, manufacturers of, of masks that so you can play the flute actually and all the instruments wearing a mask, which I'm not sure how effective that actually is. Probably not at all, but just gives us some peace of mind. And a lot of schools have honestly just carried on like nothing's happened. So I'm sure there are some numbers that where it's gone down quite a bit, but in some where it's been quite robust and people are so ready to have that human interaction and play in ensembles again, that I expect it's going to go up now that we're getting over the hump. Great. Thank you for that word of hope. Uh, This is our very last question. What aspects of your life and career as a musician has surprised you? How does it measure up to the life you envisioned for yourself as a young musician? Well, I envisioned myself doing exactly what I'm doing now, at least before COVID. When the pandemic hit in 2020, seems like Wow. It was just right. It was 2020. Um, I was in production with the Atlanta opera playing Porgy and Bess. And we literally had the rug pulled out from under us and it was right away. No, there's no performances. We're canceling everything. That was a big reality check. And the symphony had to cancel performances. The ballet canceled performances. Every orchestra on the planet pretty much was canceling performances So that left a huge number of us in the workforce not working. That was our bread and butter. Obviously, I'm thankful that I was able to teach still and maintain my teaching in my studios throughout that process, but uh, it was a big hit financially. But out of that grew super creative leadership at the Atlanta Opera. I'm so proud of their thinking out of the box. Um, In October, uh, during the pandemic of 2020, they created what they call the Big Tent Series. So we staged two operas on the baseball field at Oglethorpe University under a circus tent and worked very closely with Carlos Del Rio, who's with the CDC on COVID protocols and guidelines. 
the orchestra was in one tent and the singers were in another tent and everything was open air opera. And we staged two productions uh, that were kind of running simultaneously, one every other night. So we had a different cast for each production to minimize transmission. And I believe that we were able to successfully pull, pull those productions off without any uh, COVID infections in the height of the pandemic which is just remarkable. I mean, I think there were more than 4,000 people in attendance to the Big Tent series. And it was so innovative that other opera companies and performing groups all over the country were like looking at us like, wow, this is really amazing. You know, we didn't just sit at home and not play. And so out of that grew a big uh, series that that they've decided to continue because it became such a big hit with the Atlanta community, uh, which really stood behind the organization. So, so out of that, we were able to scrape by and get a little bit of work during the pandemic. It employed a lot of really talented local singers in our Atlanta community that are sing- that were singing all over the world and were currently sitting at home. It employed a lot of musicians, a lot of scene director, you know, scene, scenery, wigs, costumes, um, tech. So it ended up being really, really fantastic evolution of the opera company. So I'm, I'm super proud of being a part of that. And uh, I'd certainly never thought this would be something we would even have to consider doing, but it, it ended up working out and you know, the opera's in the best shape it's been in in a very long time as a result of it, so. Wow, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I had no idea that that had taken place, so that's exciting to hear. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for this conversation. It's been a delight hearing your perspective as a flutist. You are our very first flutist interview on the GMTA podcast, and so I've really enjoyed listening to your story and your perspective Thank you so much for your time and thank you for your openness in sharing with me and our listeners. I wish you happy teaching and happy students.